0: I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing.
1: What's going to be different in ten or fifteen years than it was maybe ten or fifteen years ago? Ten or fifteen years ago, they might have expected you to recite key financial stats: price earnings multiple, price to growth, uh, dividend yields, credit rating, as it may relate to fixed income, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are continue to be important, but the more qualitative aspect of how what businesses do and how they do it. Um, will also be front and center in terms of of what people expect to know about what they own.
0: That's Hugh Lawson, a Managing Director at Goldman Sachs and the Head of ESG and Impact Investing at GSAM, that's Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Today on the show, Impact Alpha's David Bank sits down with Hugh to talk about his journey to impact investing, where GSAM is pointing its $1.7 trillion in assets under management. Let's jump right into their conversation.
2: Welcome, Hugh. Thank you, David. Delighted to be here. Thanks for joining us. I'm very interested. Uh, Goldman Sachs, obviously a big asset manager and has made a big push into impact investing. But let's just situate for the listeners, you know, what part of the whole empire you are are, are working with. So so just explain first Goldman Sachs asset management, and then later we can get into the, the impact and ESG part of it. But what is Goldman Sachs asset management?
1: Um, sure. Well, well, Goldman Sachs Asset Management is part of our investment management division at Goldman Sachs, which is a very large operating business for us where we invest capital on behalf of our clients. And our clients range from uh, individuals, uh, both high net worth individuals um, and inv- individuals more broadly, large institutions, so you can think of pension plans and sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, Endowments and foundations and so
2: forth. Just give us a sense of how much money we're talking about.
1: So the division today, we we advise on about one point seven trillion dollars of assets. Uh, so as as they
2: say, that that starts to be real money. Think so. Think so. And and uh, uh, and just to be clear, that's other people's money, as they say, as well, right? That's not the bank's money.
1: Right. We're, we're investing on behalf of our clients. It's their capital, um, you know, their retirement savings or part of their retirement plan, or it would be endowment assets. And we, we invest across the full spectrum of assets. We have teams that focus on equity investing, fixed income investing, private equity, real estate, private credit. We have teams that think about multi-asset class, so where we would manage um, a, the full amount of capital for a client. We asset allocate across assets. We do all that both on a direct basis where our teams are picking the securities. We also have a very large business where we hire the best-of-breed managers from outside the firm. So uh, we give our clients access to a curated set of of third-party strategies. Um, So it really spans a, a wide range of strategies, and we do that on a global basis. We have investment teams and clients all over the world.
2: And of that, the, the ESG and impact is, um, I, I think, around $20 billion if I if I have it right?
1: It's a bit more than that at this point, David. It continues to be one of our most rapidly growing segments in the division. Um, we count very conservatively. So in that number, we're focused on mandates that our clients ask us to manage, where there is an explicit ESG or impact goal as part of the investment guidelines. We have a much larger number of assets under management where, where our clients may ask us to screen out certain segments of the market. Uh, but when I talk about ESG and impact assets at the scale that you mentioned, that's where there's a really an explicit goal integrated into the investment guidelines.
2: I want to dig in, obviously, on, on on how you do all that, but let's actually just let folks understand your own journey, because you I don't think came to it as a as an impact guy originally, right? You you were uh what we sometimes call a legacy type investor of the of the or, or what some people call a mainstream or traditional investor. Is that isn't that right?
1: Uh, that, that's that's fair to say. I mean, I, I've been in the industry for almost 23 years. Uh, and I've done, done a range of things, and I was fortunate enough to be asked uh, to chair the investment committee of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund about five years ago. That's a foundation here in New York, very active um, around the world in its grant-making program. A big centerpiece of the work that the foundation does
2: uh, is it's focused on, on climate issues. Just one note for again for listeners is the Rockefeller Brothers Fund is distinct from the Rockefeller Foundation, um, but but obviously from the same family. But uh, this, this is a a, a foundation. What I, I'm not I, I can't quite recall, but it's 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 smaller at least than the Rockefeller. It's foundation.
1: Smaller, it's smaller. It, 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 today we have about a billion one or so of of uh, endowment assets.
2: Gotcha. And and so you were asked to chair the investment committee and at that time they were going through some uh, transition and some, some rethinking of their own.
1: Yeah, in terms of the way, so, so, so climate is such a centerpiece uh, of the work of the foundation that we felt that we wanted to be consistent with our objectives there throughout all of the activities. So not just the grant making that the fund does, but also how we manage the endowment. And are we, are we using all of our resources, including our investment dollars, Um, to advance the progress that we would like to see on all matters related to climate. Um, And so the task that we set ourselves was to do several things. One was to divest from fossil fuels uh, in terms of the funds holdings. The second thing was to increase significantly our amount of impact investments that were consistent with the mission of the foundation. A lot of that has to do with climate and the environment, but not all of it. And we wanted to do all that in a way that did not reduce our expected returns or increase our risk uh, because we have ambitious goals in terms of our grant making program and the financial wherewithal
2: to do that is so fundamental. The divestment decision obviously got a lot of attention at the time because the Rockefeller original fortune was, in fact, standard oil, of course. And and so the divestment obviously uh, raised some, uh, you know, caught, caught people's attention, shall we say.
1: It did. And I I would say, you know, I I think I think my colleagues at the fund and and the family more generally, you know, very focused on on science and 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 what needs to happen in terms of um, the habitability of the planet and and all of the important things that we see um, that humanity will need, given given the scale um, and, and the needs. And so, you know, when they look at the science and they say, um, you know, climate has got to be one of the most important challenges of our time and we should do our part um, to advance, advance the cause and reduce the rate of emissions, um, that's, that's, a, that's a belief. I mean, it's always been a, a science-focused um, family. And so, as, as new information comes along, um, I, I give them a lot of credit for adapting.
2: And so they turned to you to say, OK, we want to do this. And how do we do it in a way that makes sense from an investment point of view? Uh,
1: they did. Uh, and at the time, I thought it was a, a fascinating question. And, you know, in all candor, which I, which I shared with them at the time, that is not something up to that point about five years ago I had spent much time uh, at all on. And so, you know, as, as we thought about it, it struck me as really fundamentally an investing question like any other. And so I would define an investing question as one where, generally speaking, you're dealing in a world of uncertainty, right? So you're thinking about the probabilities of a return going forward, but you can't guarantee that, of course. Secondly, there's generally more than one right answer in terms of how capital can be invested prudently. There are defined styles and choices that could be made between public markets and private markets, but there's a range of practice that's, that's robust. But when you, when you look at a foundation, and frankly, any large pool of capital um, or small pool of capital uh, as it relates to an indiv- individual, you have to think about a few things. What are your objectives? Or put differently, what liabilities are you trying to finance? So in the case of a foundation, it's the grant-making budget. What is your time horizon over which you're trying to do this? How important is it to you to maintain purchasing power or try to maintain purchasing power as you're doing it, or are you spending principal? What level of risk is both probably necessary to get to those goals, but also tolerable, because again, making the point that you're dealing in a world of uncertainty, you're you're going to have some volatility undoubtedly along the way. And so in order to do that, you need to uh, think through a whole range of issues. What asset allocation is appropriate? How adaptable should that asset allocation be based on different market environments? How does one implement? what's What's your view on active strategies versus passive strategies, for example? What's your tolerance for illiquidity, if any, and if there is some, how do you think about what you do in private market format versus public market format? And then in this particular case, uh, and and a growing uh, number of investors around the world are asking the same question, um, you know, how do we advance some of our other goals and adapt also to the world as we see it evolving? And climate is a centerpiece of that. And divestment is one strategy. There are others. But divestment is one strategy in this case, and a desire to increase our impact investments that use our capital to advance the objectives of the grant program, but also generate an appropriate return for the risk taken. So what I thought was so interesting about it was you're integrating these ESG and impact objectives into all of the other investing questions you're tacking, uh, tacking simultaneously. So I view ESG and impact questions as an investing one like any other. And what I was so excited about at the time as I thought about it is I looked in the marketplace. There really were very few, if any, providers at the time that I felt were able to have a deep set of expertise and understanding of all of those things simultaneously. Um, We came up with a very good solution in the case of the fund, but I recognized that our clients here at Goldman Sachs Asset Management were increasingly focused on these issues. And we could take a leadership role in helping them think through those uh, in an appropriate manner and then implement it in their, in their portfolios. And so the idea was born to really dedicate some serious resource to this at, at the division, which I have led.
2: So at that time, the, the capacity didn't exist inside Goldman Sachs. And in fact, you, that, then the, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund experience helped you think maybe we should have that.
1: That's right. I mean, we had a good start in a number of areas. But in terms of pulling it all together um, strategically and making sure that we uh, were able to serve our clients across asset classes with key ESG and impact goals, and we're able to do that in a multiple choice format. Again, some clients may be more passive in the way in which they implement their portfolio's passive strategies. Some may be more active. Some may have a higher tolerance for illiquidity. So the way in which you would implement would vary. And so, what we decided to do was increase our focus, increase our re- resource, and really try to build out what we hope is is a best-in-class practice in ESG and impact investing.
2: Well, let's get to that. But actually, just if you could finish the Rockefeller Brothers Fund story, um, because now they're several years in, there's a bunch of there's several good case studies of that because it's quite an interesting transition, as you say. But where do they where have they landed now after the, after these several years? Well, so the endowment essentially
1: has reduced its holdings in businesses that extract and process fossil fuels down to a de minimis amount. Essentially, it's all gone. Um, We have increased our commitments to impact strategies in private markets to over 10% of the endowment uh, from a commitment point of view. And I have to say, knock on wood, our investment performance over the period has been very solid. We're ahead of the benchmarks that we set ourselves which were both conventional benchmarks, as well as we do have an ESG benchmark. We're ahead of both of those. Um, So we've been able to generate the returns that we needed to pursue our grant program. And so, so far, so
2: good. And so when you go and take that experience, and then obviously your your new thinking back into Goldman Sachs, did you find resistance, or did, were you welcomed with open arms? Everybody said, "We've been waiting for this, and, and go for it." What what? How does it work in a sort of a a culture uh, uh, perspective?
1: Well, I think the firm has always been um, focused on issues of, of climate. You know, if you, if you go back to some of the work we did in Terra del Fuego. Uh, over 15 years ago, we've had an environmental markets group um, at the firm for about the same period of time where we think about innovative financing for environmental solutions and work with our corporate clients on those issues. Um, And so it was well-received. And the question becomes from an execution point of view, how do you do it rigorously, but also efficiently? And so what's interesting about ESG and impact is Fundamentally, it's about the what and the how. So you're, you're very focused on what the enterprises to whom you're providing capital are doing and how are they doing it. And you'll think about, obviously, financial return. So is what they're doing profitable and will generate a return on capital? You have to think about, you know, is it a good business and a sound business? But you'll, you'll pay a perhaps higher degree of attention to how it's done in all of its dimensions. So you'll think about labor, Uh, relationship to key stakeholders in the communities in which you operate. You'll think about the environmental impact of the business. Different businesses have different environmental impacts, but things that you'll look at are certainly emissions, um, various externalities that are negative. So if there's pollution, you may look at water. There's a whole host of of issues that that one would dig into. Governance factors are are important. Supply chain factors are important. So the qualitative aspect of, of the what and the how I think, is heightened when you're focused from an ESG and impact um, point of view.
2: ESG factors and, and environmental, social, and governance, as, as, as you say, they used to be considered kind of uh, non-financial and, and not really part of the, uh, at least, core analysis. And increasingly, they're becoming part of the core analysis. Isn't that right?
1: That's exactly right. And I, I think I think almost all... Um, investment strategies have a heightened awareness of, of these factors. I think the question becomes, you know, how do you weight them? So what is your process for thinking about them? In, 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 in conjunction, of course, with all the financial metrics that are relevant. And then what views do you want to take around them? Um, and so, you know, you, you may have a very future-centric view um, where you'll be leaning the portfolio into – themes that you think are, are emerging as, as particularly important and companies that are likely to benefit from them, and you'll avoid companies that, are, that you feel may, may not benefit. Um, so th- those are the same, same kind of questions. So you asked me the question of how was it received. That process is the same process that, that any active manager is doing, right? You're always trying to anticipate how things are going to be going forward. Here, you're doing so with a greater degree of focus on, your right, Things that in the past may have been considered non-financial, but I think in the world in which we live today, there's a greater recognition of the interdependencies between all of those things and financial performance. In terms of the receipt here, everybody was, was on board and excited, and so the, the task was to know what we didn't know, so we had to bring some additional talent into the firm, and so the imprint uh, capital acquisition was part of that. We did have a range of people that were already working on it in very thoughtful ways, and so amplifying their work, integrating them, getting them to collaborate more. We had to spend more time with our clients, helping them think through their issues, so to really understand where we could add the most value relative to to others with, with our clients. And we wanted to do so in a way that was financially viable. And so there's a risk when you do something like this that you start replicating the core functions that already exist in an asset manager and you build an asset manager within an asset manager. In my belief, that doesn't actually work because you're you're duplicating a cross structure and it becomes it becomes unwieldy. And so what you need to do, which we can talk more about if you'd like, is is have a matrix structure where you supplement with specific expertise that's needed to augment what's already there, but you leverage what's already there in an efficient way.
2: I just want to pause for one second on the imprint capital acquisition, which I think was in 2015 and at the time was sort of like a bell going off and, and indicated, I think, to people that this rather boutique uh, impact investing uh, manager out here in, in San Francisco um, was of interest to Goldman Sachs maybe this impact maybe this impact investing uh, idea you know might might actually be going somewhere in the bigger markets
1: I think that's right I mean th- there what what Taylor Jordan and John Goldstein who founded the business and the team had done um, you know was really a research driven process where they they thought about investable themes that um, both benefited from the trend toward a greater focus on things that would be considered ESG or impact centric, um, but also uh, tried to accelerate them in a a way that was prudent. And they really brought a high degree of investment acumen with them, as well as a lot of experience and credibility with the broader network. And so what's been wonderful about it is both the depth of their their capabilities, in my judgment, but also their their culture was, was so strong uh and compatible with ours and so that that's very important obviously when you're doing an acquisition that the cultures gel and i believe you know four years into it uh, that's been the case
2: so i asked about sort of the culture and as, as you say uh that that gelled and and the, res- the reception was was strong but there still is a i don't know you've you've been, you've called in the past i think a clash of ideology there's actually a sort of you know history of how asset management is done and 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 the efficient capital market hypothesis and and whatnot and and there is a change going on. Uh, How would you sort of take it at that high level? Well,
1: so it's interesting. I think the first thing to remember is that, you know, we we serve our clients as we started in, in the conversation. And most of our clients, when they give us capital to invest, give us some very clear guidelines within which to do it. Most of those guidelines are informed by the efficient capital market hypothesis and the market standard, which is market cap-weighted benchmarks are the norm, and in fixed income, it's issuance-weighted benchmarks are the norm. So, think of S&P 500 or Russell 1000 or MSCI World or ACPI or whatever whatever it may be. That That's generally in the equity realm, your benchmark. And if you're a passive manager, you're simply trying to replicate the benchmark. If you're an active manager, you're trying to outperform the benchmark, but there will be limits to what you can do to do that. And if you want to sort of step back sociologically, why is that? Well, that's because the ideology that governs most asset management is that home base, just stick with equities for a second, is market cap weighted benchmarks. Now, the challenge with that, if you're future looking and if you're an ESG and impact minded investor, you're probably um, hoping and trying to have certain things in the future be quite different than the way they were in the past. And the problem with market cap indices is generally they give a picture of the world as it is today. So the weighting of securities in a market cap benchmark is essentially the market cap that they are today. Now, we can have a debate about how efficient the market is. So has the market priced in everything that might happen in the future? Uh, some may say it might, some may say it doesn't. But fundamentally, ESG and impact investors are trying to really understand qualitatively, as we said a little bit earlier, what a business does and how they do it. And the composition in their portfolio may very well be different than what the market cap index would deliver you today. And so what you're doing is you're maybe having a perfectly appropriate home base, it's, a, it's, a, it's as sound a starting point as any, but you're modifying kind of your mix based on what you believe is both financially sound and potentially for others, you know, um, they may view it as, as, from a moral point of view, an important thing to do. Um, the degree to which you will want to deviate from the neutral market cap starting point will vary. Some investors will want to um, put a toe in the water and just do a little bit. Others are perfectly happy being profoundly different. But what 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 I think is interesting in these conversations, particularly for institutions that have, you know, fairly tight governance around what home base is, you know, you have to think about these future-looking issues in the context of your starting point. And so w- when I say that there's kind of a ideological uh, frisson going on, it's essentially that.
2: Well, is I mean, just to take your original example, is climate risk uh, uh, baked into the, the, the markets now or is there or is there some shock or, or reckoning coming?
1: Um, well, clearly, it's it's hard to say exactly definitively uh, answering that question is yes or no is pretty, pretty difficult. I think it's a, it's a question of, of degree um, let, me, let me give you an analogous question. So let's say 10 years ago or 15 years ago, pick your time horizon, you know, had the impact of emerging technologies been uh, fully reflected in, let's say, let's say, Amazon's effect on the retail marketplace, had that been fully priced in? Clearly not. Clearly not. Uh, and so maybe climate is in, in that vein. Maybe there are, there's a high degree of uncertainty. The climate outcome will be in part a function of many decisions. Consumer preferences, how we all choose to live our lives. There may be a governmental action regulatory component to it. There's certainly some leadership that the corporate sector needs to take in that. There's clearly the planet itself, how it's responding to different things. Um, there's a high degree of uncertainty there, right? So, so there's no um, predetermined outcome that's quite precise that's predictable exactly from where we are now. So all markets have to deal with that degree of uncertainty, right? Um, So it's almost impossible to say that the market has priced in everything in the future, right? That clearly isn't the case. The Amazon example may be a little bit easier to see, at least in hindsight, in terms of its effect on on bricks and mortar retail. Um, But there's probably going to be that degree of change, if not higher, that will affect a whole series of segments of the economy that you know um investors try to anticipate and to the extent you're an active investor that's that's exactly the business of active management
2: well so when you when you now are discussing this with your colleagues i think you know the the obvious question is you know does this esg hypothesis you know does it as you said does it can you can you have returns in line with the benchmark i think you're Take would be that at least it's non-negative. I think is the is the phrase I've heard um, in in terms of of the de- deviation. And then maybe there's some some risk mitigation uh, benefits as well. So would your argument be that ESG investing is is just better or smarter investing? Um, I think I think uh, I would I would probably rephrase it slightly
1: differently. I I think ESG and impact investing can be rigorously done and additive to a portfolio in the same way that there are other themes that one may focus on in a
2: portfolio that can be additive well what I was going to try to what I was going to try to lead you into just to lay my cards on the table is if it is smarter investing and you obviously have some caveats there but if it is then why would it only be uh, what it, what must be a relatively small percentage of the total 1. 7 trillion wouldn't why 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 is why hasn't it become uh the conventional wisdom
1: well uh that's a, that's a very good question i'd answer it this way i think you know remember my definition was quite strict so we're, we're we try to be you know quite prudent and thoughtful about what we label uh, things as being so the 21 billion dollars in esg and impact assets have an explicit objective written into the guidelines. That means the client asked us to, to put that in the guideline and that that is central to what is done. Many other guidelines will not do that. They, they may be more focused on, you know, what home base is and risk targets within it. Now, that doesn't mean ESG can't be integrated into what would be seen as more conventional asset management. And we're working hard to do that throughout our investment complex, as are, as are others, where you'll think about these factors as part of your security selection process. And so in that sense, many, many, many more uh, of the dollars in our complex would, would be thinking about ESG factors, but there may not be an explicit ESG or impact objective in the guidelines if, if, if that difference is
2: clear. So at some level it's a client demand or a client preference question and 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 therefore the asset owners your clients um are the ones that are going to determine whether it becomes uh the mainstream or whether it's still a a sort of um I don't know I don't know what the right word is boutique or 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 at the margins kind of kind of
1: approach. I think that's right to a degree. I guess I would I would put the spectrum as follows. There's ESG alignment which is mainly about editing out securities that um, are the types of enterprises that you do not want to give capital to and amplifying those that you do, there may or may not be an outperformance thesis that goes with alignment. It could be values-driven, it could be outperformance-driven, but that's what what alignment is. At the other end of the spectrum is impact, where you are deliberately seeking to catalyze an outcome And you're trying to do it by funding enterprise that is both a viable business, but also generates that externality that you want to achieve. Could be innovative healthcare treatments that lower the cost and increase the accessibility of certain healthcare um, solutions. It could be related to uh, water efficiency and water intensive uh, production processes. It could be a range of ESG factors where you're trying to catalyze that impact. Between the two, is something called integration. And that's where, on your point, David, about you know, can this become a touchstone of all asset management? Um, I think it can and is becoming that way, because I think most active managers today would say, these are considerations that we look at when we're trying to overweight or underweight securities, because they help us identify risks. They help us identify opportunities. Um, Not all investors who do that self-identify as ESG or impact investors. They just consider themselves active investors, and that's part of what they're doing. Um, what What I do think is happening is probably the intensity of focus and depth of data and information an active manager wants to appropriately assess these ESG factors. That's going up. And so I think over time, and and we, as I said, we're integrating um, these things throughout our active processes. I think you will see this becoming um, quite a standard thing among active managers. Uh, hopefully, before too long.
2: Well, and active managers always do want some way to differentiate themselves and to, in a sense, justify the uh, I assume higher fees on the active side. So, um, so ESG becomes something that they can they can offer if it has some value. Then, then clients. Actually, my question is also, well, where does client demand stand? Are are more clients asking for this?
1: Um, Yes, I would say, you know, I think our European clients have been focused on it for some time, um, as have our Australian clients. I would say that, interestingly, so in in North America, we have a much wider array of clients um, who are at least inquiring about how we use it as a tool, so an integration into our active processes, and they would expect um, a thoughtful answer to that. Um, I would say also in Asia, we're seeing increased interest, particularly in Japan, which is interesting. So yes, I think, I think investors around the world are much more attuned to making sure that their investment manager partners are thinking about um, these issues as core to what they do.
2: One of the clients, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about your clients, but one of the ones that I think is public is the New York State Common Retirement Fund um, that you have done some work with um, in particular on their climate uh, concerns. Um, maybe that's a good example of, 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 of how client demand
0: kind of works.
1: Yeah, so I, I, would say, I would say our colleagues at the Common Retirement Fund are, are very, very thoughtful and are on a journey of considering cl- how climate risk will affect their portfolio. It's an ongoing process. They continue to devote a lot of resource and time to making sure that they think it through prudently. We're fortunate enough to be one of their partners in that. We work with them in a number of different ways but but part of what we do is in their in their climate portfolio in, in their equity portfolio and climate has been a focus um, there and what we've done um, is we've worked with them um, to develop an index that uh, essentially tries to have the same expected return and risk characteristics as their purely market uh, cap-based equity implementation does, but tilts capital uh, a degree toward companies that tend to be much more efficient in generating shareholder value but per unit of emissions. And so without getting too technical about it, what what we do with, with, with our colleagues there is we look at um, all of the industries in which they're exposed. We we think about which ones are the leaders in their given industry, so they have, they have a relatively lighter emissions footprint for dollar of market cap value generated, and we tilt the portfolio towards those and away from those that are least efficient. Um, it also provides their engagement team with some information about who's best in class and who isn't, and so, you know, as long-term asset owners in these enterprises, even if a company may not be best in class in this area, the engagement team would like to encourage them to be, and so um, we we help them uh, with some of the information needed to do that.
2: A couple questions. One, I think they made an initial allocation to this index um, back a, a few years, and then I think a couple of years later they doubled down and, and made an additional allocation, but there's still quite a lot of there portfolio that is not in that low carbon index fund and presumably is as much at risk as as it was when they had the initial concerns
1: well the, the, you know i i don't i don't i don't want to speak for them uh in 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 their thinking entirely but but what i would say is i i think they've continued to allocate assets in ways in both passive and active uh, that are are very sensitive to these issues um, they 've just had some ongoing additional work and and uh, my understanding is that they 'll continue to do more and so it, it, it 's a journey i mean these things um, you, you don 't in any it would be unusually um, unusual in the investing world to on one day manage your assets one way and then on the next day manage all of them you know, somewhat differently right It tends to be a process.
2: Certainly. But there is also a kind of urgency that um, people have been expressing, obviously, on the, on the climate front, particularly and, and more generally. And, you know, I guess you you, you raised the engagement question. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of interested in digging in a little bit. And I know New York State Common has actually been quite active. They they, they tried, I believe, to to raise a shareholder resolution with, with Exxon that I think got um, rejected at the SEC level eventually. And, and they've been working on that. But, you know, is it, engagement is is it, does engagement work maybe is the simplest way to do it. Is, is, is engagement an effective tool in changing uh, corporate behavior?
1: Well, um, I, I think there are certain examples where, where it, it, it clearly is. And you also have to think about um, ways in which it's sort of invisibly effective, right? Um, to the extent that long-term asset owners you know, are focused on some important issues and particularly wanting and expecting best-in-class practice among the companies that they invest in in a range of areas, right? It doesn't have to be just ESG areas, but can also be, uh, you know, in terms of capital efficiency and a whole host of other other financial things that they would want them to be. To the extent that, that companies know that their investors are very focused on that, they're more likely to, um, um, you know, stay on top of it Right. And, and so I, I think the, the, the challenge in, in, in trying to evaluate engagement is, you know, everybody focuses on situations where, where through engagement, clear change was driven. Sometimes that happens. And that's an important thing to do. But you also just have to think about the act of engagement um, in, in, you know, to use the vernacular, keeps people on their toes in the first place and probably heads off things, you know, that may not be visible because they didn't happen, if you see what I mean. But fundamentally, if if you're going to be a meaningful equity owner in a company, um, you know, it makes sense for you to be vigilant in all ways about how your investment's doing.
2: Let me ask you, like, to, to close this out, just to kind of your crystal ball of, and you can pick your own time horizon, but, you know, in in a 10 or, or perhaps 15 year horizon, you know, what do you think will be different in the way uh you know particularly major asset owners um invest uh wh- wh- where is this going
1: well i i i think there will continue to be a range of choices made in styles representative so you'll have some asset owners that will continue to be more in the passive vein some will be more in the active vein You'll continue to see different choices made about what's in private markets versus public markets. I, I, don't, I don't think that plurality of approach is going to change. But what I, what I do think um, will be increasingly the case is that asset owners will want to know how their portfolio lines up on some of these important ESG and impact criteria that I think the world is coalescing around our um, are, are material. Right. So I think you'll have greater consensus around industry by industry, which ESG factors are more material. Right. Different businesses, the mix will be different in terms of what's material. Um, And I think asset owners will want to know where they stand on those and they will want their asset managers who they work with to integrate that into their investment processes. Um, Again, there's a range of practice there, depending on whether it's passive or active. But I, I think you will need to be able to articulate how the different companies represented in your portfolio stack up on what's considered best in class in ESG. And so what's, what's going to be different in 10 or 15 years than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, they might have expected you to recite key financial stats, price earnings, multiple price to growth, uh, dividend yields, credit rating as it may relate to fixed income, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are continue to be important, but the more qualitative aspect of how what businesses do and how they do it um, will also be front and center in terms of, of what people expect to know about what they own.
2: Well, it's 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 fascinating that uh, Goldman Sachs is um, it will be on the case, and I would love to be able to check back in with you and, and and time to time and see how how it's progressing. And thank you so much, Hugh Lawson, for being with us today.
1: It was my pleasure, David, and I look forward to carrying on the conversation.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thanks to Hugh Lawson and David Bank for that great conversation. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time.